The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court. Unless there is any, any more questions, we have to find an argument in this case. Your Honor. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to give their attention. Welcome to Divided Argument, an unscheduled, unpredictable Supreme Court podcast. I'm Dan Epps. And I'm Will Bode. Let's keep talking to the Shadow Docket. Yeah, more to say here, so let's jump right in. This is the fundamental problem with the Shadow Docket, is that uh, a huge amount of it is for error correction, and everybody believes the court should do some kind of error correction. There's something like really bad, and the court could stop it, and legally wrong, and the court should stop it. But then once we go down that road, there are all these heuristics and biases for like what kinds of errors you want to correct that we don't deal with in a fair, systematic way. Does everybody believe that? I mean, some people just say, look, the court is not about one-off cases. It's just about getting the big legal principles right. Uh, I mean, Justice I'm, Scalia said things that sounded like that at points. I mean, obviously, I don't think he lived up to that because I think you can point to him signing on to things that are error correction. But right. that's, he, that's he said stuff I, like that. I mean, he said stuff like that. Yeah, I guess I'll stand by that. I think there's nobody who who has zero cases of error correction that they support. There's nobody yeah. who would say, you know, yes, if a lower court issues a nationwide injunction against, you know, the bombing of Cambodia, we should completely ignore that. And also, if a state is about to execute a completely innocent person, we should ignore that. And also, there's nobody who's across the board against error correction. Yeah, I mean, there are some people who say if the state is about to execute a completely innocent person, we don't care, for sure. But, but then they yes. think that... Yeah, everybody has some errors they care about. Yeah, okay. I think that's probably right. Um, I think this is a good segue to talking about summary reversals. But. Yeah, so so let's talk about that. So summary reversals, these are cases where somebody files, typically files a, a cert petition, and maybe they're you know asking for the case to be argued and heard in the ordinary course, but the court will just say, this is so clearly wrong, this lower court opinion, let's just grant it, write the opinion, and just put it out. And you don't even know that's coming, right? This is something you noted before. There's no docket, so it's just... You just notice uh, John Elwood, who does uh, Realist Watch, he sort of keeps track of petitions that have been lingering in some kind of inexplicable way. And that kind of gives you some information about what's going on. This one has been relisted, you know, eight times in a row. And then all of a sudden, the next week, we get this, you know, six page per curiam saying, you know, gosh, the Sixth Circuit really screwed this one up. Yeah, exactly. And these are, I mean, these are all error correction, which if the court will officially tell us, they mostly don't do. But the reason you summarily reverse a case is because it's wrong. And yet it wasn't sufficiently complicated or hard that it actually required any further yeah. argument. Yeah. In theory, it should be kind of obviously wrong because if it's not obviously wrong, you'd want to be really careful and get your amici in place and, and all that stuff to give you the best arguments. Yeah. And so this is, I think this is a particularly problematic area because the court seems to have issues that it cares about where it cares about correcting the errors. And I think that the choices the court makes here, I find them somewhat indefensible in the sense that the court seems to want to correct errors when a lower court erroneously, in its view, releases a prisoner, grants habeas relief, or denies a qualified immunity defense to a law enforcement officer. Much, much less likely to go in the other directions. There, there are some examples, but much, much less likely. Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I, that seems really hard to justify. So I agree with you, but let me try. Okay. So I think a majority of the court thinks that in these areas, especially habeas relief under EDPA and official liability under qualified immunity, majority of the court thinks we have these doctrines 
there are a bunch of lower creatures who don't really believe in the doctrines. And so while they don't openly say so, they regularly defy us. And there are particular judges on particular circuits who do it the most. And if the law is going to mean anything, we've got to, you know, actually keep an eye on them and not just like trust them to be acting in good faith. And I think the court's right about that, isn't it? I think it is right that some of these cases uh, for sure are not good applications of EDPA. Like EDPA is, for people who are not familiar, this this rule has a bunch of stuff in it. But the one that we I think we're probably most concerned with in this context is the rule that federal court can't overturn a state court conviction unless the state court did something like really unreasonable. At least if it's a claim that was previously heard, it has to not just be legally wrong, but like really, really legally wrong. And a lot of times it seems like some of these federal courts are just saying, you know, we disagree on the merits uh, in a way that's often kind of debatable and maybe even wrong and then granting habeas relief on that ground. Yeah, exactly. And so, and and the courts, you know, then interpreted EDPA in some merits cases to be even stricter maybe than than they have to for, you know, how wrong it has to be and yeah. you know, how much you have to defer. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, you said this, but I think we have to put a sharper point on it. I think there are a bunch of lower court opinions that are not good applications of EDPA and not even good faith applications of EDPA. That is, there are a lot of judges who think it's a bad statute. The Supreme Court has misinterpreted it and they're not going to completely go along with it. I think that's, you know, true, at least in part. I think that there definitely are cases that I would say probably have to fit into that category. That said, I think there are also a bunch of cases going the other direction, not habeas cases, but criminal cases in general, where you have lower courts, maybe they're not defying precedent, but they're just not, they're not giving these cases the kind of attention they deserve. They're being dismissive to meritorious claims. And in terms of numbers, you know, my suspicion is that that pool of cases where people are are really not getting their fair shake on in in criminal cases that could be reviewed by the Supreme Court is probably larger than the number of cases where you know circuit courts are really not doing what they're supposed to be on EDPA. And yet, I think it is next to impossible to get summary reversal if you're a criminal defendant, habeas petitioner. We can point to some examples, but I think it's really really hard. Yeah, I completely agree. But just to be clear, so I think the problem is not so much the summary reversals in EDPA cases, for example, mm-hmm. is that there aren't also a, a mirror image set of summary reversals of yeah. criminal convictions out of the Alabama Supreme Court. Yes. Not to pick on Alabama. It's too late. Yeah. And I think that's what's really missing. And now maybe it's because the justices don't agree with us. That there are a bunch of miscarriages of justice in those courts. Maybe it's because they just they just normatively don't care. Or maybe it's because it's harder for them to find them. Like, I do think there is yeah. this, like, Ninth Circuit, Sixth Circuit effect, for instance, where there's there are circuits you don't trust, and it may be harder to build up that sense of of mistrust for a state Supreme Court. Yeah, and there is there is this signaling thing of a lot of these, you'll have some of the judges who disagree writing dissents from denial of uh, rehearing on banc and, and sort of just doing stuff to try to put these things on the table yeah. for the justices. Fair enough. Although I think that there are some that they are aware of, or at least attention is drawn to them, they skip over. And also if they started doing it a little bit more, there would be better mechanisms for making them aware of that. I completely agree. But then, you know, that's Edpa habeas. I think even less defensible is the qualified immunity ones. And this is another issue that, that you care about. You've written another influential article on this, is qualified immunity unlawful. But even putting aside whether we like qualified immunity or not, Looking at the kind of run of those cases where the court has said, you know, lower court, you should have granted qualified immunity. I see a lot of cases where lower courts are granting qualified immunity that I find highly dubious. 
And yet those cases don't get summarily reversed. And these cases where the court thinks, you know, yeah, I didn't really get the qualified immunity right. Those, those are reversed uh, in favor of the law enforcement defendants. I, and I just, I find that completely indefensible. So look, I agree with you, but I'm not sure we can put aside the wrongness of qualified immunity. Like I think if the qualified immunity were written into a statute the way EDPA is, maybe, you know. I think there would still be an asymmetry though. Let's just say we had a, a statute tomorrow that said courts should continue, you know, the, quali- the doctrine of qualified immunity continues to exist. I still think there are a bunch of lower court decisions that I find somewhat preposterous, even if you if you take the qualified immunity standard seriously. Like, gosh, do you remember the, the one where the officers just like stole thousands of dollars in cash? And yes. I can't remember what circuit it was. They were like, well, it wasn't I, clearly established that you couldn't steal money. I mean, it's like, come on. Well, you couldn't steal money that you'd seize pursuant to a lawful warrant. So it's, yeah. <laughs> look, look I, I think these qualified immunity cases are outrageous. I think the court should have summarily reversed like 10 of them. Yeah. But I think part of the problem is they don't necessarily agree with us about what the qualified immunity standard should be. They did try to, they summarily reversed a qualified immunity case in the other direction this term for the first yeah. time. In, well, they, and they had another one with Tolan versus Cotton like seven or eight years ago, right? Yeah, so that one was not, they did not reach the qualified immunity issue. Oh, so right, right, right. It, it's close, but but uh, yeah. this term they had a case, Taylor versus Riojas, arising out of the Texas prison system, where the, it's exactly the kind of case we've been talking about, where the Fifth Circuit said, you know, yes, this person had, was basically unable to eat and drink for four days while locked in a cell filled with excrement. Fifth Circuit said, well, you know, four days, you know, we don't have a case saying four days is unreasonable as compared to a week. And the Supreme Court did what they should do in these cases and summarily reversed and said, look, come on, guys, this is this is too much. Yeah. But I mean, it shows you that how outrageous that has to be for them to care. Yes. I can't believe I'm defending the court here. But I think another way to put it, though, is I think it took the court longer than it took us to realize how much of a problem there was in the lower courts. I think what the court is doing is it's it's using some reversals to react to what it sees as a sort of a, a bad trend in the lower courts where they need to send a message. And we were more woke to the trend than the justices were but but they got there and then they actually they even remanded a couple more cases in light of that case which is like to try to send the message now yeah you know that's good they should do that more six years ago i filed a cert petition in a police shooting case trying to you know where where qualified immunity was granted and legal grounds that i just thought were outrageous and ridiculous and you know, filed a petition and we just straight up asked for summary reversal, got some good amici and they just kind of denied it. And I think that there are other cases like that where you can point to things that, you know, are even taking the existing doctrine for granted. Like they're just kind of indefensible, but, but it, it has, it, you know, they don't, they're not, they don't seem to get interested in them. Yeah. I th- so I think this is also, this is an underlying problem with the cert process, which is the cert process is part of the summary reversal process is we actually don't have very good standards or principles for like, can you not take a case just cause like, it's not a doctrine you like, you know, you don't want to, you're not going to overrule the doctrine, but you're just like not super excited about it. Can you not take a case because like, it's not what you're interested in. I think those kinds of things truly do affect the justices and it's all discretionary. So maybe there's yeah. nothing wrong with that, but it seems troubling. And that's part of what's like really being brought to the fore here. It's like, can we really have, you know, an extra dozen uh, Supreme Court opinions on why you don't get habeas because some of the justices have a bee in their bonnet with the Ninth Circuit and nobody cares what the Fifth Circuit does. Okay. So, you know, we've talked a lot about what's been going on, very kind of bird's eye view, what's been happening in the shadow docket, uh, what are some trends, what does the shadow docket mean? I think at this point it would be 
helpful just to kind of get a little normative. And, you know, this has been kind of lurking in, in obviously the background of everything we've been talking about. But let's try to be a little bit more general and try to identify all the specific things we think might or might not be problematic about the shadow docket. And then maybe think about how one might change it if one wanted to do so. And so we could do that a lot of different ways. I have Steve Vladek has written uh, in his, he gave some testimony to the House Judiciary. He wrote down a bunch of things he thought were problematic. I don't know if you want to say what you think is problematic first. Why don't you say what you think is problematic first? So I'm still trying to wrap my head around this a little bit. I think what's problematic in part is they are clearly making choices that they don't explain, even if they write opinions. Yeah. And I think that some of those choices they're making are troubling. And so, you know, as you could probably tell in our discussion, that one of the places where I got most concerned was when they're clearly making this sorting decision about what do we summar- summarily reverse and what, what do we don't. And clearly there's some underlying principle, which is just that like, it's a lot worse for some police officer to be held not entitled to qualified immunity than the opposite. Yeah. And that seems, that seems wrong. I mean, first of all, it seems troubling that they're doing that and they're not telling us that. And actually Justice Sotomayor sometimes has started to be like, hey, look at this, this is ridiculous. Um, but also, I mean, that seems like a value judgment that just, that's that's wrong and also maybe kind of obviously wrong. Yeah. You know, even when there's no qualified immunity, I mean, the officer is almost always, essentially always indemnified. So it's not even like the officer is paying anything out of the officer's own pocket. Whereas, you know, if if there is qualified immunity, someone who's, you know, seriously injured or killed, and this is their family trying to get compensation, gets nothing. And and yet the court seems to just have made the the opposite value judgment and and won't tell us that. Yeah, I agree. So, So I think that kind of like bias, partisanship, allowing your personal views, even if they're not partisan, to like creep into the merits are the kind of some of the worst sins and the things the Supreme Court most needs to fight against. And it's part of the problem with the shadow docket. Let me just try a quick, I'm doing this off the fly, but let me try a quick sort of like typology. So one thing you might care about, which I don't care about, is something that's just like the appearance of procedural fairness. Should give everybody an hour of oral argument because that way, you know, everybody knows that, I don't know, they got their day in court. That's the thing you could care about. I don't really care about it, but you could care. Uh, another thing you could care about is the court getting the law wrong. Like the shadow docket cases don't get enough briefing. They don't get enough. So the court just screws up the law. I care about that. I'm not sure how much it happens, but I care about that. A second thing you could care about is the court making discretionary decisions sort of in a way that's like just on the merits problematic. So it's not it's not so much that they're like misinterpreting the statute. There is no statute telling them when to grant cert. But they're favoring some interests over others in a way that's, that's hard the thing to I justify on the merits. Yeah, yeah. And I, I care about that a lot. And I think that a lot of what's happening is that. And part of the reason it's hard to get a beat on that is because it's discretionary. We don't have a great vocabulary for what principles should apply to it. Or it's, it's harder to say, like, what exactly is the Supreme Court doing wrong when they, you know, favor some issues over others? And then the last thing we care about is whatever it is they're doing, they need to tell us about it. And I will say my initial frustration with the shadow docket was was partly the last, uh, some some of the second, but also the last, which is just people who like are experienced Supreme Court litigators or recent Supreme Court clerks kind of know how this stuff works, and it can help you figure out how to get your state cert petition granted or your stay application taken seriously. But even if you buy Stern and Gressman, which costs like a thousand dollars on Amazon, like you have a really hard time getting through it if you're just an ordinary elite lawyer, you know, let alone. <laughs> let alone, you know, an ordinary person. And so there's like getting the law wrong, getting discretionary decisions wrong on the merits, and then 
telling us what the hell's going on. And I think the Shadow Docket involves all three, but especially uh, misuses of discretion and not telling us what's going on. Now, now, of course, I mean, another thing that's going on, obviously, is that people just don't like the substantive decisions. And, you know, it's not surprising that, you know, at this exact moment, the I would say the bulk of the shadow docket criticism is coming from folks on the left who, you know, who don't like what the court was doing with these Trump DOJ applications and, you know, overturning a lot of lower court decisions. Now, that still could be the also the problem that I'm concerned about, which is that the court is kind of not just on the merits favoring particular interests, but it's kind of, it's giving like an extra, it's giving kind of unfair consideration. Oh, that's where I'd say like, if, if you'd have the same critique, even if the court like granted cert and heard it argued on the merits and then decided the case, uh, then it's not really a shadow decker problem. It's a Supreme court problem, right? So if, if your problem is the Supreme court, you know, ruled in favor of the Trump administration too often, but they were going to do it just as much in the travel ban or whatever else, then it's less of a shadow deck. What if they wouldn't have granted cert in most of those cases and they're applying a different substantive standard for whether to do extraordinary relief? That's yeah, different, yeah. right? Yeah. Then then it's, yes, I agree. Then then we're back to saying the court is misusing its discretion in some way that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's, let, let me just talk about some of those other things in your typology for a second. So you said one, don't care about due process, give everybody a hearing. And I think that probably has to be I don't know if I would say it quite as bluntly as that, but it probably has to be true in a world where nobody is entitled to cert at all or anything from the Supreme Court. In a world where basically other than those random three-judge district courts and random original jurisdiction, they can just deny for whatever reason they can deny because they're they're working too hard. And so it is hard to say that, well, but then you, everybody should have a full hour of oral argument. Now, maybe you could say, look, if they're going to change the status quo, due process requires, maybe not constitutional due process, but fairness requires them to do a little bit more. But but yeah, I think that one, it's hard to get too motivated by that in a world where they can just you know deny for whatever reason. And they deny thousands and thousands of petitions every year. But there was another one that I thought was interesting. Telling us what's going on. Oh, yeah. The secrecy one. Transparency. Yes. So that's something I, this is kind of a pet issue for me. I've been working with Marin Levy on a paper about judicial secrecy for a long time. I know you have some views on this too, but my view is that way too much about courts are secret and there are, you know, there, the, the presumption should be more openness and there's limited numbers of things that they should be allowed to keep secret at least for a while. But there's a lot of stuff that they just keep secret kind of reflexively. And this is, you know, the thing you said about, you know, clerks. This is another thing that's weird is like not only do we not know what they're doing, even some of the rules about how they do it are secret. Right. Like when you're clerking, there's this like, you know, little booklet that's like it takes, you know, um, six votes to get the food in the cafeteria changed or, you know, whatever. Not that exactly. But, but like there's different thresholds for votes and things like that. And like, as I remember being told, like that is actually not something that's disclosed. I mean, sometimes it gets disclosed in an opinion where some justice will be like, our normal rule is we need five votes to do this. And then everybody knows and it goes in starting Gressman. But they don't just put that up on the website. Like, here's our procedures. You need this many votes to do this, this many votes to do that. And I don't see why that, that seems, that seems completely indefensible to me. I know I keep saying things are indefensible, but like, what is the argument for that? Yeah, I, th- I think I agree. With you. I mean, I think I agree with you in the sense that, look, there's some stuff where there's no reason that they don't even want us to know these things. Like, you know, the court 
how does yeah. the court want to get this information or what are the things the court cares about? You'd think it would want to just tell all the tell yeah. litigants. I guess some of them could be things where actually the justices themselves don't agree on the standard. And so it's still a secret. Because There's stuff that's in that's in a manual that's like, here's what we do. Yeah, I don't remember that. But OK, well, I think that's, you know, could be you clerked you clerked a little, you know, a year, year a longer ago than I did. So maybe it's really else the but um, yeah, but I, I agree with you. So there's a bunch of stuff like that. I, I, you know, I'm sympathetic to some more secrecy. Like, yeah. you know, I don't know that we need the justice papers to come public. You had some, you were going to write some article that like clerks who disclose anything about the court should be, you know, disbarred and executed or something. Right. I, I think uh, you dropped that one. I haven't right? dropped it. Oh, you haven't dropped it. That's still, is that still happening? I have a work in progress. Yeah. That I've never disclosed to the public. Okay. I, I can, do you want me to edit this out? No, it's fine. Okay. We can tell people that argues that it's a violation of the rules of professional responsibility for lawyers to even attempt to get clerks to leak information that's private about the court. What about getting, what about the clerk leaking it themselves? Oh, I think that, that's yeah. the same. But like disbarable. I, you know, disbarment is probably a harsh sanction, but I don't know. Maybe Ed Lazarus yeah. should be disbarred. Oh, yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole kettle of fish there. Yeah, for he, for anyone who's unaware, he wrote Closed Chambers, kind of a, a juicy tell-all of his term clerking for, was it Justice Blackman? I think so. The term of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, I think. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people say he kind of played up a lot of things and maybe embellished uh, to make it seem a little bit more political. But, yeah, I could see... I can see arguments both ways. I do think my view, and we don't need to make this a whole secrecy conversation, but my view is that the Supreme Court has a tremendous amount of power and they have very little accountability. And I think ultimately there is some strong interest in the public understanding how they're being governed in some sense. I agree that, you know, like there needs to be some period of time, you know, where, you know, you don't just leak the internal deliberations the day after the decision. I think those rationales really diminish after a not particularly long period of time, five years, 10 years, something like that. So I'll, I'll say, he said, I care a lot about whether the court, whether justices do a good job, whether they apply the law well, whether or not they remain principled, whether or not they you know, use their discretion well. So I see a lot of the secrecy concerns as a means to that end. And some, sometimes I think secrecy helps the justices do a good job. So I think the justices are more willing to have candid conversations with each other and with their clerks if they know they have control or where that stuff becomes public. But other times it's the other way around. So like we should at least know how the justices voted on stuff that's important because being forced to t- publicly take a side one way or the other is part of what lets us be able to tell yeah. what they're being consistent. But also knowing how decisions are made is also can be relevant. Like if it turns out somebody says, you know, you know, Justice X is flipping a coin every day and he's just saying, hey, you know, clerks, Tell me which, which, uh, whether it's heads or tails, and that's how cases get decided. I'd want to know that, right? I, I'd want to know it, but I'm actually, I'm, I'm worried that would have the wrong incentives. To not, it would, the incentive would be to not decide cases by flipping a coin, right? No, the incentive would be to flip a coin and not tell your clerks. <laughs> so the thing is, if you ask dumb questions to your clerks that reveal that you don't totally understand an area of law, you can't, like, then, then the word could get out that you don't understand some area of law. But if you flip a coin in your own chambers or just, like, Pick the, the one who seems conservative to you in your own chambers and don't tell anybody why, then we'll never know. So we want to encourage us to talk through the things that concern them and try to learn more. Yeah, I guess, I guess you know, we have to do a balancing, though. It's like, how much are we going to deter justices from asking the occasional dumb question? I, I honestly think not that much versus how much are we going to enable people to kind of see what's going on, maybe, you know, understand 
like, you know, maybe it turns out some of the justices act in a much more partisan way inside chambers than others do. I mean, that's, that's all relevant. I agree with you about the balancing test. And so I'm not sure you're obviously right about where the balance lies. Okay. But so, yeah, so, so that one, the secrecy that does carry some weight with me getting stuff wrong. I mean, maybe not wrong on the merits as much. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much, you know, that's an open question is how much of these are cases where they would actually reach a different outcome if they got full briefing, maybe not that many, but definitely there could be ones. I think there are ones where actually the more they say, the more they might muck things up, right? The, uh, the Tandon case being maybe the biggest example we've talked about where it's like, did they just make some radical change to uh, free exercise jurisprudence? And maybe if they'd had another two weeks to think about that, they would have not done that or they would have, you know, come up with a narrower way to decide it or. This is the one where I'm the most conflicted. And it's a question about Supreme Court opinions generally is on the one hand, I think it's an important, like their first duty is to do no harm. So when they like in the course of ruling in one area, just like say some stuff that accidentally, you know, changes how bankruptcy law works in some way they didn't fully appreciate that can really (laughs) that's a big problem on the other hand if they have deep misconceptions about how some area of law works or some like you know area of doctrine they're doing something really weird about they should tell us (laughs) because they might just be doing that like without writing opinions and just right yeah if their view is actually the smith test doesn't really apply or it applies in this weird way that people didn't really know you know we'd probably rather they tell us than not yeah Although, so here's one of here's one of Steve's concerns. He says one problem is that they're prematurely and, un, and unnecessarily resolving constitutional questions. They're deciding these constitutional questions early in litigation. Maybe they would turn out to be unnecessary. Yeah. And so you know maybe there's something to that. That maybe they decide it now. And actually, this is an issue that if we didn't have to do this on the shadow docket, might not actually percolate up to the court for a few years or something. And you know, uh, that can that can change stuff. Yeah. Although again, do we? I mean, I'm not sure if. I mean. I'm not sure if prematurely is a problem unless it means they're deciding differently than otherwise would. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends a little bit on whether you care about this this thing that pops up in Supreme Court opinions about cert, you know, percolation. We should, you know, allow issues to percolate in the lower courts. I don't, I, I've always thought that was a little overrated because they'll let it percolate and then they'll just decide it in some way that no court of appeals decided. And I don't even really understand it as a metaphor. Like it's, it's a coffee machine. Or, I, don't, I don't, I don't get it. And I don't right. see why that why that makes things better. Right. I, it's just, so I think sometimes it does. Sometimes it's like, this is a weird area of law. And right now it seems like there are two unsatisfactory sides. And maybe if we let it percolate, you know, Deuce Brook will come up with something or, you know, one of the 20 Deuce Brooks in the lower courts who's really smart will come up with some third approach and that would be useful to get. That that makes sense to me. Otherwise, it's just like, look, it's a statute. Either means X or Y. And like, we're going to have to figure it out. We're not going to get a lot of useful information by letting two yeah. courts decide. Yeah, and it's often like it could be twenty years, right? You know, between when you get a good vehicle, and then you know you'd say further percolation, and then it you know floats around for a while. There's other cases; they're not great vehicles, and then finally there's another one. And I mean, a lot of time can go by. Right. Yeah, I think if the court feels like it understands this area of law and like knows what's going on, then there's no point in letting it percolate. If they're really confused what's going on, then maybe they should let it sit for longer. Yeah. Okay, here's here's another one. I thought this was interesting. I hadn't really thought about it this way. Steve says, well, maybe there's a problem that this is actually distorting the court's workload, that they're doing more shadow docket stuff and they're doing fewer merits cases or, you know, and I, I don't know if we have enough of a length of time to be confident about that. But, but you know, he, he sort of n- notes that 
you know, there's been more shadow doc- docket activity and there's been a decreasing number of merits cases. Do we care about that? I, I feel like it's hard to care about that in the abstract. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I realize everybody cares about the court's declining docket, but I mean, there are cases I think the court should take. I think they should take no cases for, you know, a good, good few years in my view. Well, there you go. Yeah. But I don't want the court to take cases. I don't want the court to take the wrong cases. Like, I, you know, I have a view of cases they should take they're not taking, but, it, you know, it's not like I'd be happy that they took other stuff. Yeah. And I guess a larger problem here in trying to talk about the shadow docket is, as you said, beginning of our discussion about all this, you said, look, it's this catch-all term that includes all this stuff that isn't the regular decisions, merits decisions. But what that means is it's actually not, because it's not one thing, it's also not likely to be one problem. It's likely to be a bunch of different areas, some of which are problematic, some of which are really problematic, some of which are not problematic. And so it's hard to say like there should be one, there's one problem that that applies to everything or that there's one fix that would make it all better. I, I completely agree, right? Like, I mean, the court is always going to have to decide last minute election or last minute execution cases unless we get rid of the death penalty. And, you know, we just need to think about how to do that better rather than worse. Yeah. Okay. So a lot that we talked about there. Yeah. Any any kind of closing thoughts? Sort of has your views have your views of the shadow docket changed significantly since you wrote your article? You know, at this point, sorry to date you, but nearly a decade ago. <laughs> you know, I guess I now do think the shadow docket may get an unfair rap. Um, you know, I mean, look at the time I wrote the article, my main thought was just like it's weird the law professors don't talk about this. This is a major part of what the court does. There's a lot going on here and there's a lot of weird stuff going on here. I do think now the court has done a better job than it used to. I still have lots of complaints, but it's clearly paying more attention to this area than it used to. And I do think people criticize what the court does there too much, you know, or like, yeah, I think people are, I may have unreasonable expectations of the court. We should be more worshipful of the, the justices and their divine wisdom. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, that won't just, get an endorse on that right no just that I mean we should understand the situation the, like the situation the court is in what they're I think they're actually like mostly trying to do something hard and in good faith and they don't always do a good enough job and they should do a better job but I do think that's fundamentally where they are yeah although uh, talking about you know whether the court is acting in good faith I mean it's just I don't I think very few people think that the justices that they disagree with are acting in good faith. I think all the justices are acting in good faith. Well, that's interesting. I, I, you know, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. One one concept that you mentioned to me a while back when we were talking about partisan criticism of the Supreme Court was this idea of the ideological Turing test, which is one of these you know rationalist ideas, right? From these yeah. you know, smart people that just try to you know. You know, think about like how can we think about things really, really clearly. But I think that's useful for trying to trying to grapple with what to think about this court. And I think it's probably useful for people like me that that don't agree on a bunch of stuff normatively and, and legally with the current court to to at least try to do, even if it's not going to make me agree with them. Can you can you just explain that? Yeah. So the so the you know the regular Turing test is the idea of a computer that can you know communicate so well you can't tell the difference between it and a human being. The ideological Turing test is a conservative or a liberal who can convey the argument of the opposing side so well that you don't know that they're not that it's not their view so that so that someone of the same persuasion so like you a liberal who could pretend to be a conservative in a way that conservatives would believe yes exactly or you know i think in theory that everybody could believe so i mean the i actually test this now in my law school exam sometimes i say Hmm. you know here's a 
Supreme Court case or here's a thing, you know, write the argument pro and con and I'll grade you on whichever one is worse. Um, that's awesome. So that sounds to, like a hard thing to grade, but that's really cool. Um, you know, and, but I think that is like, cause, cause ultimately <clears throat> you have to be able to ask yourself, like, what does Justice Alito think he's doing in these shadow DACA cases? And, you know, I doubt he thinks he's, I mean, there's lots of things we could say of what he's doing that aren't what Justice Alito would say. <laughs> so we want to come what up is with it, a, what like, is it? I guess, what is, what do we think it means to say someone isn't proceeding in good faith when we're talking about like a judge that they're like, that they're like, you know, rubbing their hands and saying, aha, I'm, I'm acting in an unprincipled way. I mean, like, what, like, like, I don't even, I, I guess we have to figure out even like what that concept means. Yeah, fair enough. So I think we usually mean something like their real reasons are not their stated reasons. Mm-hmm. And their real reasons, the reason they're not stating their real reasons is because they recognize how widely condemned their real reasons would be if they revealed them. Hmm. That's, I think that's, I, I'm not sure people thought it through, but I think that's usually what they, so like the imagined lower court judges who, whose real reason in granting habeas is I hate EDPA and think it's unconstitutional, but I can't say that because I'm not allowed to strike it down. Or if Justice Alito's real view was, you know, people who get shot by the cops have it coming. But I can't say that because I recognize that, you know, I'd get in big trouble. Yeah, although, I, like, it, it could be that their legal ideological views end up basically being the same as that. Like, it could be that, you know, Justice Alito is very principled to his legal views, and his legal views are that everyone in, you know, criminal defendants and suspects are always guilty and deserve what is coming to them. That's And that's kind of like a legal ideological view. It's not, like, I mean, because that, that is the kind of principle I, I kind of, extract from his jurisprudence yeah again i I think i think accusations of bad faith have a mix of duplicitousness so i mean justice Lou has said a bunch of things what he thinks is going on here if we think there's something more going on that he's not telling us and he's not telling us because it's bad or because he knows we would think it's bad yeah or or maybe like yeah like they don't people think okay the conservatives don't really believe in this argument in sibelius they're just this is something that's been jury rigged to take down this popular uh, this this uh, democratic their real view is this is socialized medicine and a signature accomplishment of the Obama administration who we hate. And they're not telling us those things. But I think good faith can often be functionally indistinguishable because what will happen is people will develop arguments and then motivated reasoning. You're like, oh, that sounds pretty persuasive. And then you're kind of off to the races, right? Sure. Or even, I mean, or even you could have your views, non-motivated reasoning, but the reason you got picked to be a judge is because politicians yeah. like those views right yeah um that that's true too although maybe that is less troubling because it, we don't have like kind of movement of like a moving goalpost in, the, in that sense right does, does that make sense like you, you in that world you get somebody who has a certain set of views that are the views that are desirable in the law at you know in 2005 but then kind of doing a bunch of new things i don't know yeah I'll, i'm not sure whether there's a di- so imagine somebody who became an originalist you know subconsciously because it led to conservative results and somebody else who became an originalist just because they were you know persuaded by a bunch of law review articles and it happens to lead to a bunch of conservative results and then they both get picked to be judges and they both rule the same way and just, I, like, I, just, I, I guess my suspicion journey. is that the first person would be more malleable in cases with political implications because at least we, at least when you know there are arguments going both ways, which there basically always are, even working within any particular constitutional modality, you know there are there are arguments 
both ways. I mean, sometimes they're better or worse, but like in Heller, right? They're not terrible originalist arguments. That's not an individual, right? Maybe you think they're terrible. Uh, I think the arguments of the dissent are terrible, but there are good arguments that the majority is wrong. Yeah. That something else is right. My understanding is, yeah, that's another conversation. Well, at the very least, my, my point there is just that like, it's not, it's hard to say it's so decisive in a case like that, that someone could in good faith or whatever, as we're using that term, even with, I think even with the originalist conceptions, like I don't think they're necessarily compelled to reach the answer that the court reached there. Uh, yeah, I agree. So I, 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 maybe maybe this is really showing us just, we need to figure out what we actually, what actually upsets us about the justices we disagree with, right? Like, is it we want to feel like we still have a chance to persuade them, hmm. uh, which could be different, or is it we want to feel like they're reaching that result for the right reasons, or is it just, you know, <laughs> they're wrong and that's always a problem because those, those could all go different ways well, yeah it's not i think it's not just that i think it's maybe also you're worried maybe you're worried about worst case scenarios right if i the person who i think is just the pure partisan right i worry about that person because i worry that let's say you have the the trumpian election challenge right but that has a little bit more wind beneath its sails and the person who's just motivated by partisanship is going to find a way to make that happen to rule for their preferred political side, whereas someone who is is not doing that, at least even consciously, maybe is less likely to do that. Yeah, that's right. In that, in that sense, as long as somebody is, you know, now applying, let's say, originalism, even if they got there for partisan reasons, that might not bother us that much. As long as, like, they really got there. Yeah, I don't know if I don't know if I'm ready to endorse that or not. Uh, I don't want to accidentally agree with something you said and then become an originalist. Yeah. Although I I, I wonder whether that would have been a wiser career move. Might be a judge right now. Should we put a disclaimer on this podcast that anything crazy I say you presumptively disagree with? I don't know. I agree with a lot of crazy stuff. I know, but and I say generally crazier stuff than you say. So it might be that presumptively I disagree with the less crazy stuff that you say. Fair enough. But I don't know. Just I think that the disclaimer should be I don't know what I believe and don't believe that I believe anything until I say it at least four or five times. Okay. So Shadow Docket, a lot going on there. A lot of things to think about it. I don't know if there's anything else we want to say. I don't you know if you have any fixes you'd want to talk about, or we've just I think we've covered the covered the territory. I, I think this is going to continue to be an issue. People are talking about you know maybe maybe Congress will actually try to do something. House Judiciary had a hearing earlier this year. Maybe maybe Congress will try to pass some legislation changing it in some way. I mean, you could imagine a lot of possibilities. You know, require more disclosure of votes, change the standard, substantive standard for a stay. But my guess is the most likely thing is just nothing will change legally, and they'll just people will keep talking about it, but we'll keep shedding a little bit more light on the shadow docket. You know, which is which is probably salutary. Yeah, I agree. Thanks for listening. Please remember to review us on Apple or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. We're really eager to, to get this thing off the ground and getting early reviews is really helpful in getting ears on the show. And thanks to the University of Chicago Constitutional Law Institute for supporting the show. You're welcome. <laughs> Cue music. Cue music.